My name is Chinadu Anekwe, and I'm general partner at O21. I am redefining venture capital by investing in borderless technologies that will define the future of commerce. Welcome to The First Close, Carta's podcast about the people who are building next-generation venture capital firms. We interview new voices in venture about their ambitions and challenges as they aim to redefine the industry. At Carta, we help VCs build enduring venture franchises, starting with Fund One. To learn more about how Carta expands access to equity and transforms capital markets, visit us at carta.com. That's C-A-R-T-A dot This podcast is presented by eShares Incorporated, doing business as Carta Incorporated, Carta, and Carta Ventures. The opinions of the guests and host are their own and do not reflect the view of eShares Incorporated, doing business as Carta Incorporated, Carta, and Carta Ventures. Listeners should not treat any opinion or comments as investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice. The content of the podcast is not legal, financial, or tax advice, and is not meant to recommend or offer the purchase or sale of a security. This podcast is informational only. I'm Jessica Strauss, host of The First Close, and today we interview Chenadu Inekwe, general partner of O21 Capital. Chenadu refers to himself as a venture nomad, a phrase that summarizes his global experiences. Based in Washington, D.C., Chenadu has spent his career focused on rising tech hubs around the world. At the start of 2020, Chenadu and his partner Mark Fleming launched O21, a seed-stage venture firm investing in companies creating market access for the next generation of global internet users. Before launching O21, Chenadu was the principal with seed firm Exponential Creativity Ventures and managed Affinity VC, an investment syndicate. He spent the early years of his career in roles that gave him a range of perspectives on finance and global markets. Chenadu held roles as a fund formation lawyer, an emerging market investment manager at Exelon Capital, at the World Bank, and the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, formerly known as OPIC. As we do every week on The First Close, we'll start with our guest slash line, the key stats that make up their unique track record. Let's go into Chenadu's slash line. Chenadu has built four venture platforms, including TipHub Africa, Affinity VC Syndicate, Exponential Creativity Ventures, and now O21 Capital. He has been in the investment world for 15 years. He launched O21 Capital 11 months ago. Across his career, he's made more than 50 investments and had five exits. Chenadu serves on two nonprofit boards called One Common Unity, and Generosity Global, providing clean water wells and showers from Baltimore to Cameroon. Finally, he has over 4,000 Twitter followers and is the co-host of podcast Venture the World. I'm really excited to have you as a guest here on The First Close. One of the things that you and I talked about in our previous conversations is that you define yourself as a venture nomad. And you have a very global perspective. So I'd love to hear more about what do you mean that you're a venture nomad? What I mean is that there's venture ecosystems that over the last 10 years, especially over the last 20 as a whole, have come to be very strong contributors to the development of technology and especially 
around technologies that are shaping the future. Different ecosystems all around the world. I travel, I absorb the trends and the blogs, and I learn who the founders are, I learn who the investors are, and I'm plugged in. And, and that's what I think a venture nomad is. You started to see that there are founders, are companies that are going around to these different cities and building a beachhead, whether it be Ant Financial or Flipkart or Flutterwave or companies like, call it Stripe. All of these companies in different places from Ireland to Canva in Australia, you have all of these ecosystems and they have their own energy, they have their own nuances, have their own personalities. And I like to basically parachute in from time to time, learn it, soak it up. And like now in a pandemic, I'm doing most of desktop research and connecting with them virtually. And the pandemic has made it a lot easier to be a venture nomad. So that's what I mean. It's just building relationships and diving in. That's really interesting. And the venture world itself has become so much more global, particularly in the last five years with the formation of new companies in all kinds of ecosystems around the world. How did you gain this perspective that being a venture investor with a global perspective would be the approach you would take? Well, it actually started outside of venture. I started out in investment banking. And when I started investment banking and I was working in Africa at Dinosaur Securities, which is a firm that was based out of New York, but had offices in London and a lot of other emerging markets, I already had this global perspective of the opportunities in the finance ecosystem and started my own company. And from that experience of starting my own company, that served the African landscape, what I learned was that there were founders like me in Africa, and that wasn't the mainstream media in technology. They weren't promoting all the activity that was happening. And I was on the ground floor seeing a lot of the technologies really revolutionize or create the platform to revolutionize finance in Africa. So I saw that and I said, wow, there's something coming around the corner. And then I continued to believe in that story, even when it wasn't really what other people believed. And I'm glad that time and other people's efforts have proved me right. But it was basically being at the ground floor and seeing the changes happening all around Africa and believing if it's happening in Africa, it has to be happening in every other corner of the world. That was like my basic premise, that if it's happening in Africa, it has to be going on in every other place in the world. And I wanted to see how that was happening. I wanted to see what was the next steps that we should expect in Africa based on what was happening in these other growing ecosystems. And that's where the energy came from. I wanted to learn more, leveraging the experience that China had or the experience that India had. And that, to me was how I knew that I was onto something. And take us a few steps back into your career and your background and how you came to be in investment banking with this global perspective, working on a fintech company in Africa. You've also had experience at the World Bank, at OPIC. You've run your own syndicate. In all of these perspectives, can you point to an origin point in your background that led you to pursue these experiences? So a little bit about my background. The one point that actually is the foundation point of this is the fact that I'm a Nigerian, right? My parents are both Nigerian immigrants to the United States, and I was born in the United States. And I started out as a lawyer 
I did private equity fund formation. And the first transaction that I ever did was for Global Infrastructure Partners. And Global Infrastructure Partners is led by Bayo Ogunlesi. And Bayo Ogunlesi is a Nigerian. His first fund, he was raising $30 billion from two primary investors, GE and Credit Suisse. So that was the first transaction that I ever saw as a professional. Immediately for me, representation was there, but then also barriers were broken in my head to say, these things are possible. And in the finance world, in the investment space, and I said, how do I get on that side of the table? How can I sit there and invest in opportunities? And my first degree was in engineering and environmental chemistry. So I had no idea really about this business world. And this was the first transaction I ever did, $30 billion. I said, what is this? This is possible? I want to do this. This seems interesting. So I journeyed to get on that side of the table. I said, how do I get my career to the space where I actually have the capacity and capabilities that people would invest in me at that same level that he had experienced? So I said, how do I follow the bio Gunlesi playbook? So that's where I said, okay, I need to get some investment banking chops. I need to have some business acumen. I need to understand how funds work. I was already getting that with private equity fund formation. I need to understand how to invest and deploy and manage capital. So I went into investment banking that helped me understand the landscape, build a lot of relationships. And then after that, as opposed to going the route where I'll go to private equity, I caught this bug while I was doing investment banking of learning and appreciating working with people who were leading their company, even if they were taking on our services, they were leading their company that they had founded. And the relationship that I had built with one of the company founders that was raising capital with us through investment banking, I learned that working directly with founders was what I loved. So I learned that experience. And at the same time, I had this bug of launching my own company because I saw so many opportunities while I was going back and forth between Africa and the United States and seeing all these technologies that were not quite ready or not currently deployed in Africa. So what I learned was that you have to localize and the localization of any technology opportunity is in and of itself its own business moat that you create. Like how and why does this work in this market or ecosystem? So that's what I learned and that's how I kind of got to the journey where from my own startup, I got into learning the particular way that you have to localize opportunities in emerging markets and the way that you have to learn to build coalitions when you're a stranger. Absolutely. This is an amazing story. I want to go back to a couple of points that you encountered in your career, because I think for anyone who's starting a new venture capital fund like you are with O21, which we'll get to, you have to make several different decisions in your career. And I'm curious, how long were you a lawyer? How long were you an investment banker? When did you decide, okay, I'm ready to get this next set of experiences? I was a lawyer for two years, right? Our practice law. Then I went into investment banking and my investment banking career started at Merrill Lynch. And then I went into Dinosaur Securities and Dinosaur Securities was there for about two and a half years. So the factors that told me I had enough of the experience were... I was restless. I always wanted to get to the next phase of my career very soon because I knew where I ultimately wanted to be. And I knew that the experiences that I was collecting were sort of stops along the way. 
And what I learned in that thinking that it was a stop along the way was that it was much harder than I expected along each stop. But I got there. So in investment banking, what I learned about it was that transactions are long, especially in the space I was investment banking, which was project finance primarily or covered or sovereign debt, sovereign financing or sovereign institutional financing. It was a lot of large transactions, built a lot of relationships though. And for me as a young investment banker, as a young associate, it was good to get a lot of those relationships that I now have that were especially market specific. So I had coverage over Africa. So I got a lot of relationships with whether it be project sponsors or banking institutions at a very senior level. And this was for me when I was 26, 27. And I didn't have the use case for those relationships at the time, but now they've sort of matured. And if I was speeding through the process, I wouldn't have recognized the value And I didn't, going into it, the value of the career and the relationships that I would be able to cultivate along the way. It's only in retrospect that I understand how valuable it was to have these pit stops, the understanding and the market expertise that I was able to build up. Even though they were brief moments, I was able to build relationships, understand the landscape, and then also understand a lot of the inner governance and all the rigmarole of how the sausage is cooked. I stayed long enough in every place to see the sausage get cooked once or twice and to learn how things could be optimized a little bit. You're pointing out something really important here, which is that over the course of your career, which ultimately you sounds like you wanted to do entrepreneurial things, but you were building up a set of assets in the form of relationships and understanding of the structures of finance and how those things work, as well as a set of insights. You spoke before about understanding the need for localization of business models in order for those things to succeed, whether they are in Africa or the US. The localization really matters, the set of regulations and actors involved. So if you think of the three main assets that you developed in the early part of your career, market insights, relationships, and understanding of the industries. When you looked at those three things and you were deciding to go in an entrepreneurial direction, which of those were the most important in helping you make the decision to take the entrepreneurial route? Was it the relationships, the understanding, or the insights? It was the insights, to be honest. I think every time that I felt that there was a problem that I just had to solve or there was just a space that it just needed to be filled and it didn't make sense why it wasn't being filled or wasn't being built. Those things kept me up at night, kept me working until the wee hours. So it was that. And then I often look back and say, why didn't I tap into this relationship before I started, right? But I eventually started to get better at that. When I initially started entrepreneurial efforts, I wasn't looking at my relationships in a strategic way. And in launching O21, I've gotten to the space where my relationships were the priority. What part of my relationships that I could tap into would this business opportunity based on my market insight actually resonate with? And how much capital did they have? Or how much capital were they close with? That their relationship with me, their understanding of how well I knew market insights and had an understanding would allow me to tap into capital sources. So the evolution has come from doing startups, doing accelerator to maturing and actually saying I should do my own fund. And knowing the landscape as it is being a person of color 
are a black man in America and the challenges that a lot of people have faced in raising capital that are in my same shoes, I knew that, right? But then I also had the example that I started out with, which was bioagunlessy with a $30 billion first fund. And to make those things make sense to me, it was that the way that he had to approach the process of doing it, the way that he had to establish credibility with the institutions that were willing to commit to him. Again, trying to follow that playbook, I came to state in 021, okay, this is how we have to order our steps because it's difficult as everyone else experiences, but it's not unimaginable and it has been done. So that's how everything comes about for me. So I'd love to transition now into... O21, the firm you're building now. Tell us about the investment thesis and the problem you hope to tackle with that fund. We want to tackle one real problem. And that one real problem is that the future of commerce is global. And the people that will build the tools for the future of commerce are going to have to understand the process of building for their existing market and then building across different markets and localizing those solutions very quickly. So the problem is you have to build borderlessly 2020 to 2030. That's what we believe. That's what we're 100% trying to solve. There's going to be tools for commerce. We are going to be the investors and the people that invest in those tools, that build those tools, the ones that we're investing in are initially going to be U.S. founders that are first and second generation. We think they're the people that have the most venture nomad basic building blocks, but we want to eventually expand to a lot of other people. But frankly, there's a lot of people who are first and second generation immigrants, right? Like when we tell people our fund thesis, to be honest, people's family backgrounds come out of the woodworks, which helps us understand the founders that we're planning to invest in a lot more. And we can relate to them in a lot of other circumstances. But just to speak to the immigrant lens, we want to make sure that even under the immigrant lens, that black and brown founders are not left out because oftentimes the black and brown community isn't really well represented in the founder funding system. So to the extent possible, I mean, we're always going to invest in the best opportunities, but we know that those opportunities are within our networks as well, are the networks of black and brown people, as well as anyone that emerges from anywhere. So we're doubling down on making sure that we provide access and opportunity so that we get the best opportunities for our investors, not just the ones that we're closest to. The companies that you're sourcing for O21, you value immigrant backgrounds, you value global perspectives. You value an ability to tap into the future of commerce and operate in a borderless way. What does sourcing look like for you? How do you go about finding these founders? How do you go about ensuring that you have a strong pipeline of black and brown founders? What's your approach? This comes into what we're building in terms of a brand that we want to create pillars within. So we want to create content, create events, and we want to create programming slash products. And we've already started doing that. We've created a production studio that is co-producing events and making content. We have a podcast called Venture the World. Venture the World is our podcast and community of immigrant 
founders and helping them connect and think through opportunities throughout the globe. So we're interviewing the top founders and investors all around the world and providing them the ability to share that with different places. Like we've partnered with different publications like Business Insider Africa to distribute it. And then we build in a robust community of people as well. So that community is really open. We make sure that we host conversations and dialogue that tap into various communities within the immigrant ecosystem such that we can make sure that black and brown founders know about us, right? So the first thing they have to be able to do is know and have access to us. So building that brand with that community through conversations is one of the things that we're very heavy on. So we've built communities on LinkedIn, Clubhouse, which is very audible, very intimate relationships. And we've also done email. So we've gotten that community to basically 5,000 folks all across our network. And then in terms of our total network, it's about 30,000 people. So we're growing. Those numbers don't really matter to us. What really matters is how engaged people are with us so that we can be a resource first. And then we're launching our product called Passbook, which is an even deeper dive to screen the best opportunities within that community and connect them directly with growth stage emerging market companies. And that program is launching early next year, Q1. And the whole goal is, as a part of our brand, we want to be the first place you go when you're thinking about going global. And that's the brand that we want O21 to be identified with in every community or event that we produce. So as you support founders who are going global, mm -hmm. there's a number of challenges that any founder faces. There's going to be regulatory issues, go-to-market issues, business model issues, local customs that they need to keep in mind. Do you have a framework for helping founders think about this borderless go-to-market strategy? What are the core things if you were advising a founder who wants to bring their product or service to another continent, what should they be thinking about? We have a matrix that we apply to any company that is trying to go abroad. And we developed this from my experience and my partner's experience. And this matrix slash rubric helps identify what market you're dealing with at first. So you can understand it across markets. So when you're deciding which market you're going to go to, how do you compare apples and oranges, which are fundamentally apples and oranges? You can talk through whether it's regulatory approval or dealing with how difficult that regulator is, how long it takes for them to process things. But a lot of this stems from my experience at the World Bank and OPIC, which now is called the DFC, it's in America's International Financial Institution. And then my partner, Mark Fleming, his experience at Alibaba and how that framework evaluates whether doing business in Africa is a blend of the ease of doing business index, a blend of basically measurements around digital GDP or eGDP, and then also understanding the key features to watch out for. So obviously it's regulatory. It involves also logistics and the financial rails, the communication rails that exist, the largest social media platforms, how do they work? What's the way to engage the largest media platforms? How do they work? How do you engage? It's a demographic analysis. It's a business customs and business and regulatory framework analysis. But that rubric is what we think is the best way to do it. And we like to open source tools. So that's our philosophy that we're going to do. So we want to 
open source this tool, but we're trying to refine it to the point where we're going to create a library of content around it. So it's not just our own tools, but additional tools from all around it. And it's going to be a part of the Passbook program. So next year, Passbook is launching as a program, then we're going to launch a library of tools. So it's a part of the branding that we're going to have, but right now we're working on it, right? So it, it does exist. It's more tactical for a company's perspective that is in our portfolio, that has just received capital, that is looking to understand different markets it may grow to, but you have to think of it differently at different stages. So at the stage that we have it currently, it's more around market prioritization, but we want it to be both market prioritization plus market entry tactical steps once you do that. So once we get that together, we'll launch it. And you're leveraging a set of investment experiences that you both led and participated in before deciding to launch your own fund. A number of them, Tip Hub Africa, Affinity VC, the syndicate that you developed, you were a founding principal at Exponential Creativity Ventures. In all of those experiences, you saw things that worked for founders and things that did not. You also saw things that worked for your co-investors and your LPs and things that did not. I assume with starting your own fund, you're hoping to create the very best of all that you've seen. <laughs> yes. But I'd love to step back and look at some of the challenges that you observed during those time periods. And what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned before you decided to launch your own fund, whether it was founders, LPs, or co-investors? Some of the biggest lessons are the lessons I learned for founders. It's a really interesting component, but founders understanding how their business works from a governance standpoint, that oftentimes founders don't know post-investments. They are taking on different investments from different investors like angels, and then they use safes, and then they do a note round, and then they don't really understand how much of their company they actually own when the full waterfall of things would be on a fully diluted basis, basically. And how that at critical moments really makes things very challenging. So critical moments like an equity fundraising event or a potential acquisition, and when you don't know if you control your company or not, and a substantial event happens, it is a very challenging circumstance. So I've seen that happen where someone was presented an acquisition offer and they didn't realize that they weren't the majority control of their business. But it was because when you fully diluted them based on the note programs that they've done, they didn't have decision-making authority. And this wasn't at like a series B, series D sort of moment. This was at a pre-series A acquisition offer and you don't have a majority ownership in your business, that was one of the bigger challenges. And I think that's one of the challenges that I've learned across the board. Wherever country someone's in, founders have to own and understand what is going on with their cap table. And that, to me, is like the first step to founding and understanding that from the initial standpoint of when I bring on an angel, understanding what is the kind of guidelines or rule of thumbs of what they should expect at different segments. So that's what I've tried to do. I always try to be valuable to founders. I free up my time. I'm always providing as much insight as to how the market works and what they should expect, because there shouldn't be that information arbitrage from the investors to founders. To me, it just seems predatory and not necessary as a part of the process. So that's one 
lesson that I learned on the founder side, one of the bigger lessons. And I think another lesson that I've learned on the fund and investor side, and I'm still kind of owning this to this day, is that the reputation that you build is in the people that you turn down because you're investing in maybe 1% of the people that you meet. So you're meeting 99% of people and how they feel about you is how the market will feel. And reputation is easy to lose, as everyone knows, and it's hard to build. It's hard to maintain because if you meet a thousand people a year and thousands of them are founders, you have to make sure that you're creating a feedback loop where they know that you've closed out the loop and they know that you also have given them some information or insight. A lot of people take different approaches and I've started to develop a better process as to what to do and why I do it and why it's necessary. And I think Increasingly, there have become tools like VC Rank that's launched by Newstack or VC Guide, which is the net promoter score, the NPS for VCs, which is encouraging in terms of trying to encourage better behavior. That's one element that I would say that I learned. But if we're going to go technical in terms of deeper into a fund strategy, what I realize is if I want to do value add, I have to own enough of a company such that my incentives are aligned to have enough time to actually do that value add. So if I own 2% of 50 companies in my portfolio, it's hard to determine which 2% is the most valuable 2% that will ultimately become my company. But if I own 10% of a company and I have less shots at target, then that 10% is actually very valuable segment of my time. And to me, that has become a lesson that I have embodied that my portfolio construction should match my time that I'm dedicating to the founders to create value. Otherwise, I don't have enough of incentive. Not that you don't have an incentive from the investment standpoint, but the amount of time that you spend actually allocating because the pace at which you have to allocate and the amount of time that you can dedicate to portfolio management or portfolio support, you are on the merry-go-round of actually deploying the capital. You have to deploy the capital. You have to evaluate what you're going to deploy in. That takes so much more of your time and capacity. So I learned to try to match those things up such that I can spend 40 hours in one week with one company. And that is a valuable contribution to not only the portfolio, but also to this founder and to the fund. Sometimes if you're spending more time when you have a lot of founders in your portfolio, you're drawn too thin, your relationships that you may reach out to are overburdened. And then all of a sudden, all the value that you hope to provide doesn't exist. So a couple themes I heard in the lessons you learned. One is around transparency. So ensuring that founders understand their ownership, understanding that they, at every step of their growth journey, understand what their cap table looks like and their dilution. The second is transparency around your activities and how founders are working with you, whether you say yes or no to them. I think the power of a positive no, which is also a great book, <laughs> is so important exactly. and critical to your relationship. And then finally, right-sizing your own ownership to your effort. Yeah, exactly. And all of this is really various ways of getting at transparency in your activities, the founder's activities, and finding ways to create value and right-sizing your value creation 
mm-hmm. through the process of investing. And one note, this is a core value at Carta. And one thing I do want to mention is equity education is so important. We have a new initiative to educate founders and company employees on their ownership. But it's a huge, huge problem. It's huge. There's so many reasons why it's a problem, not only from the founder standpoint, but from the employee standpoint, when all of a sudden your restricted stock becomes an issue for you because you didn't do an election 18B or something comes up where you realize if I had just known, I could have managed this better. One factor that makes startups really attractive, in addition to solving really interesting problems, you actually get rewarded ginormously for that if you actually can do that successfully. So I'm glad that you guys are tackling equity education because it's not something that's taught in many places. I'm a lawyer. The ideas around equity education related to business aren't really concepts that are anchored in the law or business. It's actually anchored in entrepreneurship. And so it's a rare knowledge set, and I'm glad that someone's out there cultivating it. And so I'd love to dive into a few of the sectors within commerce that you've identified as really exciting opportunities. What are you focused on? And if you can share any investments you've made to date, whether with O21 or before that exemplify those strategies. One thing that I'm extremely excited about and O21 as future of commerce is really excited about is embedded lending and open banking. So basically, financial marketplaces and the idea in the future that there'll be financial marketplaces that exists such that you go to one app and it has a host of financial products that the best ones that are most personalized to you are sent out to you. That's what we're really excited about and the applications of that globally. Then we're also very, very excited about the influencer and social-driven commerce and the tools. There's a huge market of tools that are coming around interactive and social commerce in America with the growth of a lot of platforms, whether it be Shopify, whether it be Amazon, Facebook, shopping. All of these have now provided a platform at scale, which did not exist previously in America outside of Amazon, to have partnerships to do a lot of this interactive and social commerce, right? So we're very excited about that. I would say when we think about the commerce angle that we've invested in previously in a previous fund, which was while I was at Exponential Creativity Ventures, we invested in a platform called Koji. And Koji, which is really exciting, it's not just one thing. It's basically gives creators the power and Fundamentally, part of our fund thesis and the interest that we have in the world is the passion economy, the community aspect, and financial technologies, and the power of the combination of all of those things together, in addition to the pipes that allow that to happen. In that, Koji exists in this realm where it empowers the community of people, leverages the passion economy of creators and leverages financial tools to do it. So how does that happen? If you look at social media and most social media platforms allow you to have a link in your bio. Right now, that is extremely valuable real estate for influencers. What do they put in that bio? How do they leverage it to generate them income? Whether it be the creator economy tools like OnlyFans or Patreon or all the like, 
Koji steps in with a more innovative approach where most people think about the internet as you need to build an application such that you dive into that application, you sign up, you register, and now you have an app stored on your phone. Koji reimagines that and says, we do not need apps, we need links. And we need those links to be free. We need people to send out these links and those links should empower people to build tools. So Koji, when they came to us at ECV, was a platform that allowed creators of games to build very small mini games very quickly. And then it was used by kids at the time. It was used, deployed in schools. And that's how they created their creator ecosystem. But when Adam Hutler, who's the founder of Exponential Creativity Ventures, and I saw it, we were really excited about the capacity to empower a creator leveraging no code and remix part of the internet or an application really quickly. We're talking about in less than five minutes, just remixing a whole app. So you can recreate Twitter, you can recreate all of these applications and just customizably plug and play. And the creator economy now is taking to it. It's growing tremendously. From the time that we invested, their valuation tripled, right, within a year and a half. And then they keep on growing tremendously now after raising their Series A, and they're taking on the creator economy. And one of the things that was very interesting that I learned in this space because of that investment was the flywheel that network effects create, right? So their ability to quickly migrate to different networks and build small no-code solutions that enabled that community to build tools. And then they recommend it to a friend and that network effect just keeps on happening. So it was a beautiful learning experience in addition to ability for me to hone, one, my insight, but then also the thesis around how global consumer trends of mini app ecosystems in WeChat informed my analysis as to the opportunity of the network effects that can be created when you allow people to create mini apps and how that consumer demand existed and it would thrive. So recognizing that you can take consumer trends in other places, helping you evaluate opportunities in the United States was one of the foundations as to why O21 has been launched. And the work of being a VC is very much the work of layering your different experiences, networks, market insights that have compounded over time, and then investing against those theses. In our last few minutes together, I'd love to hear as you build O21, what has been your most powerful secret weapon as you've built O21 in these early days of the firm? Mark and I's secret weapon has been being venture nomads. So we didn't just start thinking that we liked being around the world. We were already doing it. So our global careers had already taken us to different places. Essentially, you can't fake it. You can't pretend like you've lived someplace you haven't. You can't pretend like you understand a market you've never been to or you have relationships that you haven't cultivated over years. You can't pretend. So the secret sauce is that it takes time and that we put it in. Right. We didn't put it in deliberately to build O21. We put it in deliberately to build ourselves. And just being ourselves has been that secret advantage that our fun thesis matches with who we are and what we've done. And it aligns perfectly. I love that. What is the advice you would give to someone considering starting their own fund? What is the one thing that they should consider? 
One thing that they should consider is how they will have closing arguments to get to the first fund close. And when I say closing arguments, you know, I'm a lawyer. I always use things. But it's really like if you were standing in front of a jury of all the people that you whittled down that you would talk to and you've already presented your opening argument, you've already presented all your evidence. Now you have to convince these people to come across the line with you. What are you going to do? And that's the question you have to ask yourself. And for us, our answer was that we will prove that our access to deal flow is real and it's repeatable. So that's one of the reasons why we've launched the platform that we've launched in terms of media and the programming and community. We have to prove that it's real and we've done that. And then we would demonstrate that we can leverage media so that we can tell our story to even get a broader audience outside of our repeatable model. And we've done that. So we've gotten national press publications and we have consistently pitched our story to the press and pitched different angles as to why we would be included in any sort of private or public network or public listing. That's two. And then the third part, which I think is the most important part, as opposed to just showing what your repeatable process is, is also to anchor it on what is your representative transactions and what is your system behind you making that decision. So basically the preparation of an investment memo and some transactions that fit your thesis. So what is your closing argument to get people to invest with you today? If you were to do the whole process to get people comfortable with you and introduce yourself, pitch your fund. But how do you get them to say, I don't want to invest tomorrow. I want to invest today. And that's what I would say is the biggest lesson. And I think as everyone who is out there raising their first fund will certainly empathize with getting to that first close is very challenging. And I think that's a great point to really make clear why they should come across the finish line for your fund and have a very succinct argument. The final question I have for you is, who do you admire? Full stop. Who do you admire in general, personally, professionally, a person or people who really embody the traits that you value? It's very easy to answer this question because I'm going to start where I finish and finish where I started. And that's with Bioagunasi. The way that he's built his institutional infrastructure fund, so it's a different segment, but how he's leveraged corporate board memberships, how he's shown up in the venture space, investing in people, founders and funds, how he's consistently delivered value for his investors in his fund and consistently built a fund franchise and a team around that, and also done it with a relatively low profile, is the energy and sort of ethos that I would love to have throughout this entire process in building O21 into a fun franchise. So that's who I would say. One of the important decisions Chenadu addresses is a question many venture fund founders ask, which is, when is the right time to found your own firm? Early in his career, Chenadu knew he wanted to be a VC and saw his experiences as stops along the way. Chenadu has practiced law, been an investment banker, an entrepreneur, managed an accelerator, been an angel investor, and a VC with other firms. And in all of these experiences, he learned how to execute transactions about governance, he built relationships and gained market insights in the global markets where he worked across the African continent, India, and China. 
When he took the step to start O21, he and his co-founder, Mark, brought together their experiences to build a firm that aligns their expertise to the challenge they want to tackle, which is investing in diverse founders who are building the future of borderless global commerce. They are building O21 based not only on their experiences, but more importantly, their values. And it's really their values that stuck out to me. Diversity, community, transparency, and alignment. Chenadu's story shows that the right time to start your own firm is when you have enough conviction and your own perspective. The First Close is a Hit Start Media production. The show is written and co-produced by me, Jessica Strauss. Hit Start Media founder Theo Miller is creative director with sound production by Nick Canapa.